Hi, I'm Lauren. I'm Tia. And this is the Journey to Transformation. Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? It's been ages. Yes. Um, how's life? Life is good. Should we just give people a little bit of insight into perhaps an upcoming episode around living your values, standing in the sun? Yeah, so, so I think maybe this week and I think probably the past month, we've really, our values have really been tested in a couple of projects where I think you especially as project manager have had to say no or put boundaries in place. That's right. And as a small company, it's so scary. And so I think at some point over the next couple of weeks, we really want to share some more insights into what it is to really say no. I think we need to be living our values, which include really being mindful and paying attention to the well-being of ourselves and of our teams. But also I got a mortgage to pay and I'm trying to make our five-year strategy session happen on a super yacht. So we got to make that money. But then there's also a component of that where I think maybe we need to just be building in a values-based contingency where we know that up until a certain point, we can always leave a project because we've got X amount of money in the bank to cover us for a little bit. Because, yeah, it's it's really, really testing our emotional and psychological fortitude to stay stick to our values. And I think somebody wrote into us actually and asked if we could share some more situations where we've had our values challenged. So I think this is going to be a good episode that we can we can talk more about that. Yeah, I'd actually really like to read out a couple of emails that we've had from people or some some questions. But before we do that, um, I think we should also just say it was Pride this weekend. Yes, happy Pride. Um, Happy Pride, everyone. We attended again. And if you haven't, go back and listen to our episode that we did when we attended last year. It's called hashtag all our pride, yes. where we reflect on our experiences and what we saw. Yeah. And that was the 50 year anniversary last year. So here's 51. Nobody really cares about that one. <laughs> <laughs> did you have a nice this, pride? I did. Yes. It yeah. was really lovely. And I always just feel so much joy and so much kind of, what's the word, inspiration. And like, a I don't know, it fills my heart, like just seeing everyone celebrating. Mm. Although this year was just up oil, interrupted, didn't they? Okay. I, I've got a question about this. Okay. We did an episode on the right to protest, so protesting and dissent. Now that it's impacting my gay celebration, I'm a little bit pissed. This is <laughs> this is such a good point, you know, because I, I also heard the leaders of Pride being like, anyone who interrupts our celebrations, like this isn't good, whatever. But I, I feel confused by this because wasn't Pride a protest? Like, sure. and surely Pride interrupted certain things for the people i don't know the just up oil issue was about corporations like coca-cola and people pink washing essentially sure what does pink washing mean it's like pretending that you like gay stuff just on pride it's so like when all the pride flags come out right just in june and the beginning of july and then everybody just goes back to like their yeah. regular heteronormative bullshit right and you know it was the lgbtqi plus representatives within the just stop oil movement so i i think what's really interesting oh, that's here, quite cute yeah <laughs> but what's interesting here is like yeah it's a protest within a protest okay, and so how, how can you how can you argue with this you know sure 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 but is the protest target the right target do, do you see what i mean because like one pride needs to be free for everyone mm-hmm. and they provide support to lots of like small artists and venues and things like that how does that happen corporate monies we looked at how much it was costing coca-cola to participate in the parade and it's over 10 grand yeah that's pretty significant i would think 
And isn't this the complexity of like, you know, you're, you can be pro pride and part of it, but can you be anti-corporation if they fund it? Like it's the same with the fucking development sector, right? Like, you know, we can be anti UK government policies, but we'll take their funding. Here's what I would love in a perfect world. Just Stop Oil would find a way to replace the Coca-Cola money. Right. So, for example, back in my direct action days, when I was... Climbing trees. There was a whole economic argument for the logging industry, right? I don't buy it. I think it's bullshit for a number of reasons, but whatever. So what happened was a number of forest defenders got together and bought the land that one of the trees we were trying to protect sat on. Okay. All that money went back into the system as it needed to. The company wasn't out money. There was no kind of like, this may have been a conflict sensitivity thing because there was a tension between the logging industry who are like, you know, regular people who work for these massive corporations, but regular people out of concern for their income. So I've got some other arguments around that. But that was it. It was a way to mitigate against some of these tensions, right? That's a very good example. They bought that, you know, whatever the kind of land was around it. So yeah, just stop oil. Just drop in 10 grand, get rid of Coca-Cola. Boom, you're done. But it's not just Coca-Cola though, is it? I suppose it's like everybody else, British well, Airways, United Airlines. Well, they need to focus. Because <laughs> what are they going to do? On those. <laughs> what are they going to do? I mean, th- that's the thing. Like, they, as long as they don't, I mean, I do think that Coca Cola probably has the fortitude to be able to do a few more prides, right? Like, in a balanced calculation, like, what would you do? But still, like, I do think there needs to be some consideration for the fact that even if you got all your little gabies coming and protesting, that's really fucking cute. <laughs> However, we got enough fucking shit to deal with. Like, just let us have our parade. <laughs> it was so delayed as well. It took ages. It did take ages. But then my question is like, yeah, but this is it's also climate related in some way. Just a boilers climate related generally, aren't they? Mm. And so shouldn't they, you know, if it's, I don't know, I'm just trying to connect the climate thing now because like you can't just say, oh, climate, stop. Like, we've got a lot going on, you know? Like, what they should have done is walked in the parade themselves. Oh, that's such a great idea. Right in front of Coca-Cola. Walk in front. They're free. Like, the NGO tickets are free. I don't know if they're a not-for-profit, but they're a community organization. So they could have walked. Just walk in front of Coca-Cola and harass those employees. Be fine. Or just have, like, yeah, your post is the thing about pinkwashing. And then loads of people would have seen it rather than being arrested. Were people arrested? Yeah, they were taken away, yeah. Well, they were, like, taken by police from the road. I don't know, like, the extent to which it was. Oh, because it was um, illegal parading? I don't know exactly, but... no right to parade <laughs> but that's the thing like that would have been they would have been seen all along the thing yeah right? i think that's a really good point okay we'll get in touch and give him a shout and they could have walked really slowly <laughs> just like painfully slow but they would no, have been able to do it yeah that's like, true you know when you like lay on your side and you kind of roll <laughs> I could have just done Ten that. hours later. Yeah. <laughs> um, Anyways, just some ideas for Just Stop Oil. We do think that oil should just be stopped, but don't stop my parade enjoyment. I wanted to read a couple of questions that have come in from our listeners. Okay. Um, as, a, as a new feature, I think we should be reading these out. And I don't know whether I should read people's names or not, so maybe not because... Don't unless they've said. 
Okay, well, no one's really said. No one in an email says, please read this out. Okay. <laughs> we, we need to just check the GDPR. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, someone's written in about their participatory action research episode and said they found it really useful. They're working in the academic setting and they said, do you think it could be used in other settings outside of the humanitarian sector? What do you think? Why not? It's just anything where you get people involved in a research setting to then change whatever it is that's happening. And oh, Stop Oil should do some participatory action research <laughs> with Coca-Cola. <laughs> Indeed. Just as well. But um, you've also used um, research methods in academia and in the humanitarian sector, haven't you? Yeah, because I'm a bad bitch. So I think that there is definitely a, yeah, because it's research in general, isn't it? So. Yeah. I mean, I think what we should be doing is thinking about how academic approaches can make that crossover because it is quite complicated. So one of the methods that I used in a crossover was qualitative comparative analysis, which in itself, if you don't know what it is, can be quite intimidating. It's quite a lot of syllables anyways. It can be an intimidating methodology. So we've done things where we've broken them down into PowerPoint presentations and like small explainer videos and things like that, just to give people, just to demystify it in some ways. But I think that taking a, while there's lots of problems with academia, just in general, and I think it <laughs> creates a lot of barriers. Um, I do think that there is a kind of barrier to being able to draw from that space, draw inspiration from that space. As somebody who's also taken part in clinical trials, I think you also just have to be mindful of like the ethical dimensions when you're dealing with consent. Right. I think it's kind of an ethical black hole that you just have to be willing to navigate. And I think that's part of the reason why generally people steer clear of some of the more complex, seemingly complex methods. Right. But that doesn't mean that they don't have value. It depends on what you're trying to look at, I suppose. On, on Thank you, listener. Uh, but, but on your clinical trial, someone did write in and ask, have you had any side effects or issues since your clinical trial? Oh, uh, thank you for asking. No, I don't know. I was a bit irritable when I came back because suddenly I had normal. Shut the fuck. <laughs> I had to go back to a life where people weren't doing my laundry and bringing me all three meals, and I couldn't just kind of sit around doing a virtual reality exercise. That was a bit of a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> Back to reality. Yeah, but no side effects, thankfully. I think I was in like, there right. had, that, that trial had been going on for years, so I would have been very surprised. Although there were people in my cohort who I do think had side effects. And, and will you find out the results of that trial? I don't know, maybe in like 10 years when it's approved. Oh, wow. Okay. Probably. So one final comment from a listener who really enjoyed the episode on white people white people every episode's about white people. <laughs> uh on oh on attention white uh attention white people okay attention we, good we, white people attention good white people we re-released oh, right. it a few weeks ago and they said it was really great to hear about grassroots movements working towards rachel justice could we spotlight some more of these initiatives in future episodes rachel justice rachel that? did I say rachel <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we absolutely can Okay, great. What's even better is if you all write in and tell us these. Yeah, and that's a really good point. We'd love to hear from you if there are any initiatives out there that you're working on or associated with. We'd love to shout them out. Um, in addition, please keep your questions coming. We are really keen to hear your engagement with our episodes yeah. and happy to answer any questions or clarifications you have. Oh, that was nice. Yeah. I like this little segment. Let's segue into today. So we're talking about conflict sensitivity today. Indeed, because you and I are routinely in conflict. Exactly. So we've got to figure out how to be more sensitive. <laughs> <laughs> okay, why are we talking about conflict sensitivity beyond that? 
I think it's a relevant conversation because everything that we do is about understanding how we interact with those complex dynamics. Aren't all dynamics complex, to be fair? But how we interact with those dynamics to make sure we're not making shit worse. I think about it in terms of when you've, you're delivering your programming in one community and not another. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And and, and, and and you can see your neighbor and you're just like, the fuck? Yeah. Got like fucking Ferraris rolling around. She's not Ferraris, but <laughs> that sort of dynamic. When you've got close communities and you see one is getting some sort of intervention and another isn't. I think that's exactly it. Um, and thinking a bit more about well, what does it mean to choose one over the other, mm. and what could the negative impact be, and who should be choosing? Because right. I mean, this is the legacy of colonialism, right? Mm. Like prioritizing one ethnic group, religious group, minority group over another. This is the starting point of all protracted social conflict. Right. What conflict sensitivity is meant to help you do is think of yourself. And I say like as an organization or someone in the humanitarian sector as part of that system, because you're deciding. So you're now in that system of what's people's behaviors, social engagement between those communities. You've inserted yourself in that space. Do you want to talk about maybe some key characteristics of conflict sensitivity? I've got a couple. I've often found it quite useful to separate it into three different parts. And it's the Conflict Sensitivity Consortium also defines it like this. So to understand the context in which you operate. So understanding how everything interacts. Understanding the interaction between your activities and intervention and that context. And then acting upon that understanding to avoid negative impacts and maximize positive impacts. So I've often found it quite useful to separate into those those three things. Understand the context, understand where you fit in the context, and then understand what you can do to transform conflict in that context. Exactly. Sexy. Yeah. Nice. Really, Rule of three. Yeah. I, I like that a lot. Yeah. Okay. How might these things be achieved? <laughs> Sounds great. Well, <laughs> so when you say understanding the context, what are we what are we talking about? Because in my mind, I'm thinking about root causes of conflict. I'm thinking key actors, power dynamics, cultural norms. What? what yeah, exactly. Is that it? So, well, <laughs> Winning. So, so the actors, you know, and the drivers of the conflict. Actors being not necessarily just a static thing. In either actors may come, may go, may interact with the conflict in different ways, mm-hmm. in different stages. Um, have different agendas, different levels of power and influence, and then the drivers of conflict. Um, and this often comes back to resources, what's driving it in terms of maybe lack of resources, maybe there's some political agendas. It's always well. resource scarcity. I'll tell you that right now. Yeah, generally. Quick question. What is the difference between root causes of conflict and drivers of conflict. It feels as a semantic difference, but I don't know if that's right. If I think about a tree, right? The tree has roots, but the reason it grows is because of photosynthesis. The roots of the tree are the starting point where it comes from, but that's not the sole reason why a tree grows. It's water, it's sun, it's love. Right, so the root cause could be that there is no water and there's a scarcity of water, but a driver could be that maybe one group has access to a market and another doesn't. Okay. So like there are other components that can drive further that issue of like not having water. Right, okay. Um, Or maybe someone has a car and they can access the road and the other ones don't. Like I'm, I'm being really simplistic here. 
where these can be drivers of the conflict as well. A car being a driver. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The second thing you said, which is understanding your interaction with the context. How do you do that? I guess, how do you see yourself objectively? We talk a lot about how organizations don't necessarily think about negative impact or negative unintended consequences of their work. And I think in some ways it's hard to do because it's hard to look at ourselves objectively and understand. Like we've even had clients push back on negative unintended consequences because it's also something that's a bit hard to know. I think like that is one of the biggest challenges is how do you gather negative and unintended consequences? How do you know it's unintended? Because I think like a lot of what this is leading to is like a perception piece. Like it's someone's perception of what's unintended or not, or someone's perception of like what, even perceptions of the conflict in terms of like who's involved in the level of their involvement. Yeah. How do you know that they didn't intend on it Versus it's just bad risk management documentation. (laughs) Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because if you ask somebody, did you mean to fuck these people over? They probably wouldn't say yes. Right, exactly. No one's going to say, yes, we did. I think like that probably comes back to the comparative with, for example, your objectives or goals or theory of change. What's the change you wanted to have, your goals, your objectives, and does whatever change you're seeing in that community align with it or not? For example, if your target was on like social cohesion, um, although that can be really broad, to be Mm. fair. Yes. um, You know, and you found some specific thing around water that was not included, then you know that could be unintended you talked about before a negative theory of change yes that's right so a negative theory of change is like a normal theory of change don't say normal normal normal? yeah exactly rude a theory of change that's used in current practice more commonly is looking at the positive change what you want to influence and at the top you've got that broader impact the other side of that is what things could go wrong in parallel to that change so let's say you've got a really big positive impact as your top of your positive theory of change on the other side you'd have like well what's what could happen that would be really bad or negative and so in parallel almost you're saying okay these activities can have this positive change but at the same time what's the negative change that they could have it's almost like scenario planning okay and scenario planning i think is a really good way of bringing conflict sensitivity and conflict analysis to life and I think it leads on to the third part of what I said around like acting on it to minimize negative impact what scenarios could occur because you're doing what you're doing I think there's um, a real strong feature that comes through in conflict sensitivity which is kind of related to that around adaptive management planning for different scenarios being flexible and adaptive and being able to adjust your approach or your Yes. The way you're operating. Exactly. Along with the context. So I think that 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 piece kind of comes together. But I I do see how a negative theory of change relates to scenario planning and risk management, but I've never seen a negative theory of change. Yeah, me neither. Um, I always thought it might be quite useful from the perspective of just having people think about both sides. And mm. um, because often the, the positive, the change we want to see is a real positive driver. We we need to be focusing on the outcomes. But if we're too focused on that, like, you know, we need to also make sure the conflict sensitivity and the risks part is in there. So, uh, so, so it might be quite a useful tool to do that. But 
it also requires you to think ahead about what could go wrong. If anyone at Just Stop Oil is interested in a negative theory of change <laughs> related to their uh, protest movement, then let us know. <laughs> Indeed. I think also what's really useful that we need to make clear is that where conflict sensitivity is defined as developing and implementing programs to work effectively in conflict, peace building is defined as working on conflict to produce peace building outcomes. So I think that's an important distinction, especially in the sector now as like we move towards bringing humanitarian development, peace building programming together. I don't necessarily see the relationship because I think conflict sensitivity can be in any space. Yes, exactly. But one is about a way of being. The other is about the like landscape. Yeah. The reason I'm bringing it up is because often people take conflict sensitivity as a as a way to say they're doing peace building or like that's the peace element of their work. Oh, right. So, you know, just to kind of make that distinction between actually you're right, conflict sensitivity can be integrated into everything everywhere and should be. And peace building is a set of activities that helps work towards peace building outcomes. And so like as people progress into if they wanted to work on peace building, conflict sensitivity is almost like the stepping stone there, but they are distinctly different. Sure. Okay. well, how does conflict sensitivity contribute to peace building then? You've opened the door. Oh, Sorry. <laughs> I mean, I think... It, Are you going to be okay to answer this? I don't want... I want to be conflict sensitive. What? <laughs> <laughs> well, conflict sensitivity does allow you to just make sure that you're not exacerbating tensions that already exist. Okay. So in a lot of places where we're working, for example, Myanmar is a good example, actually, where conflict and tensions may already arise. And while you might not be working directly on peace building, you are going to be interacting with the tensions there. And so your primary goal should be not to exacerbate that. Okay. And make it worse. So I guess in the, that context, we're thinking about like trying to reduce harm of your work. Yeah. Where does uh, do no harm fit into this? Because we talk a lot about do no harm. And I think it might be useful just to spell that out for people. Yeah. So, I mean, the do no harm principle is like a part of conflict sensitive practice. It's very similar in terms of not wanting to exacerbate conflict. And it's based on a recognition that the work that organizations do is not neutral and it can impact the dynamics of the conflict. So positively or negatively, very similar. And it encourages people to really adjust. There's a very similar principle which comes from the medical field. Yes, yes. Which I find much easier to understand as an analogy. Yeah. Just don't fuck people. <laughs> that's it. Like, that's it. So whatever you do, just don't fuck people. Yes. Literally or figuratively. That's it. If that's your starting place, then you are effectively doing no harm. Yes, exactly. But that it's more complex than that. I mean, I don't want to be reductive, but it is more complex than that because you need to understand a deep understanding of conflict and the context in which it operates and thrives is how you understand whether or not you're fucking people. Definitely. And and I think that that deep understanding and what you learn from a conflict assessment or conflict analysis has to then be taken at every single stage of implementation, not just in your design P. I feel like the do no harm principle is a real trap. The reason being is because you could go so deep 
deep down that hole, you could be incapacitated. What you mean in terms of like any harm that you could be doing? Your presence as an organization could be doing harm. Sure. Well, think about the last episode or maybe the episode before that that we did where we were talking about researchers. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, which researcher do I select? In a context where you've got multiple ethnic groups, do I have mm, how many enumerators do I choose? Do Am I allowed to ask them about their religious or ethnic background? Am I, just, is that conflict sensitive? Like, I just think depending on how sensitive you are to the environment around you, you could spin out forever yeah. asking yourself these questions. Yeah, you definitely could. Every single piece, should I ask this question? Should this, what is this word appropriate? Like even think about in Myanmar, for example, the word peace and security you know not really you can't really use them it's a red flag mm. so you know you've got to mold your entire program around words that you use or can use a language but also know? harm from whose perspective yes so do i ask would this be harmful to you is the very action of asking you that question itself harmful yes if i don't want to make assumptions about what is harmful to you because making assumptions about people's experiences can be harmful like do you see what i mean like you can just really spiral out 100 percent, and also like the cultural context in which admitting that something has been harmful like you can even reflect back on the admittance of it okay so I mean, it's not it's not easy yeah there's a huge amount of challenges with this so as if, you said it's an ethical nightmare so if you're not doing it fuck you you should be doing it but if you're doing it and you're finding it hard we got you we understand yeah 100 percent. do you want to talk about some of the challenges yeah definitely i think okay. I t we've touched on a few already but i think the thing about doing and understanding the conflict is that it's always and depending on the scale of it in flux actors genders may change People's genders may change agendas agendas yeah <laughs> why you're saying agendas people's agendas agendas yeah Okay. People's agendas. Why does it sound like you're... <laughs> People's agendas! There. That's it. People's agendas may okay. change. Okay. And levels of influence, um, levels of power, especially if we think about government actors. And so keeping an, uh, an understanding of that that allows you to adapt in the flux is really complicated sure especially because if you think about active conflict to what's going on there's always going to be people excluded from your conflict analysis like how much can you get everyone's perceptions involved in your understanding of the conflict when they're living the conflict yes right like yeah. there has to be like a real appreciation that people are living it yeah if somebody was like tell me about the conflict i want to do a <laughs> conflict analysis i'd be like you can go and fuck yourself one thousand times right yeah, bye like i just have an image of like 10 non-governmental organization workers with their clipboards around someone being like tell me well yeah because another kind of another characteristic or another useful way of advancing conflict sensitivity is being inclusive engaging mm. local actors like bringing communities with you building capacities for peace so like but there has to be a balance and this is where the good enough conflict analysis comes from sure and um, because you know at some point your need to get information to be conflict sensitive could, could cause harm because you're being extractive and taking up people's time right. and potentially causing more trauma by asking questions around their experience yeah, currently. Don't, don't traumatize people. Indeed. We can give you one tip on conflict sensitivity. Don't fucking traumatize people. 
When we're thinking about history and the root of conflict, I've always had this, you know, because I love to spit out. How far do you go back? Because sometimes you say the conflict and I think, is there ever just one conflict? Like, can you ever just go back to the Like the most recent one is built off the one before that which is built off the one before that. In a context of things like protracted social conflict, which is long intergenerational lasting conflict, how do you, how far do you go back? But I think that's a really good point. And I think that's a really bad habit of mine and the sector as a whole is like saying the conflict. Sure. <laughs> like, and it's almost assumed from our perspective, it's the most recent one, right? Whereas that also is a real generalization because there are local issues, you know, that we're talking about a whole country and we say the conflict as if it's this whole like um, monolith of us and experience when in lots of cases there might be some national issue but there's probably lots of local conflict and other things happening Mm. maybe but but you know it all comes back to sykes pico you bitches i know anyway there is probably there's loads more challenges sure i think uh some of them can be around political sensitivity which we haven't really touched on yeah because sometimes you're engaging with local authorities community members other stakeholders and if do you think that having these conversations as you kind of mentioned about myanmar and like we know peace is a bit of a tricky word there i think the other thing that we know is that like conflict analysis being conflict sensitive requires an adaptability and flexibility that doesn't always exist sure you know you can gather information and you can understand but then if you don't have the capacity resources or your donor isn't pro changing and adapting then it becomes really complicated it becomes almost an exercise of just collecting for collecting sake if you're not able to adapt with it or evolve with it i do think that there's also a misconception that like the adaptation and change needs to be seen at every level when actually it could just be an informal change at the local level that doesn't need to be documented or reported yeah and there's that like assumption that adaptive management and adaptive change like needs to be documented and seen at every level how do you deal with this temptation of continuous conflict assessment i feel like there's two sides to it one is that conflict is always evolving so you need to have your finger on the pulse of that conflict if you're going to practice adaptive management you need to know how to adapt but there's also this other tension of continuous assessment which means that you're just consuming data all of the time and maybe finding yourself in a position where you can't do anything yeah i mean i think like a capacity issue though i guess yeah for sure i mean i i think you probably have to be um practical around the level of incidents that mean that you need to redo a conflict analysis sure based on your capacity and resources alternatively you can draw on existing sources exactly um inso do you know inso no, the, sounds sexy. Um, international NGO safety organization. Hot. So, and they're dedicated to like humanitarian safety and they do like analysis of the situation and conflict really frequently. And they have like a newsletter list that they send out to all the organizations in that particular country. So that is a really good source to draw from. We'll put that in our show notes. Cool. Okay, I have to go. Sorry. Okay. So continuing with the challenges. I think it's something for me that I've always noticed because I work in monitoring and evaluation, and you can do that, <laughs> is I think often we look at measuring change or saying that we have these outcomes, this has changed, great, happy days. But we never really take time to then reflect on, well, what does that change mean for the conflict? So in the context of, let's say, at the end of a five-year project, sure, 
and you've done policy and advocacy with the government. You've worked with health and education institutions and you've done some village peace associations at the local level and you've got like outcomes across all of them. And so like, what does that look like coming together? I suppose what's missing is that that kind of collective look across all that's happening in a particular country and whether all the organisations are causing harm together by their presence, contributing to positive signs of peace. Right. Um, Any other challenges that we haven't talked about? One of the things that I think is really important, particularly when you're talking about your M&E shit, bias and subjectivity, people have different perceptions of conflict. So, and the impact of their initiatives. So how do you know, like you're saying, like how all of these organizations came together to contribute, contribute to what? Because there's no singular perception. I'd be very surprised if people could... if you could get agreement, universal agreement on the drivers of conflict. Mm. So how do you create like a coherent indicator of whether or not you're moving towards durable peace? That's a good point, actually. How do you create a fair conflict analysis or assessment of the situation when there's always going to be one side excluded? Are you as an organization going to go and interview the hunter or the Taliban or whoever else? Well, and how valid would you think that their perception is? Right. (laughs) Because they might be like, it's cool, we're vibing. I mean, people say they don't pick sides, but... Another challenge around the fact that integrating conflict sensitivity is not so easy. It requires, as we've said, resources. Resources require organizational commitment. So you kind of got to sell the increase in capacity, whether it's increase in resources, whether it's human capacity or financial or into adopting or embedding conflict sensitivity in your programming. I wonder, and I worried at some point about conflict sensitivity becoming like, you know, another concept that's overlaid into what people are required to do and people are generally doing it anyway. Suddenly there are like a thousand conflict sensitivity toolkits or operational toolkits, you know? And so it's like, okay, well, let me look at this digital inclusion toolkit, this conflict sensitivity toolkit, this nexus toolkit, this gender inclusion toolkit, this, I could go on. <laughs> no, keep going. <laughs> Name more toolkits. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> like nerd. But, but you know, like, I, th- there's always, for me, the, the fear that something, and I think conflict sensitivity is, is incredibly important, that, that it gets lost. Shall I give you what I see as probably one of the bigger structural challenges please rigidity in program design okay how can that okay go on expand a bit more don't talk to me like that <laughs> <laughs> like what that's therapy talk so tell me more tell me about more. that thank you for sharing <laughs> <laughs> whenever my therapist says thank you for sharing i die a thousand deaths <laughs> i don't know how to tell her i hate it <laughs> if you're listening i hate that <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we're always talking about how there's a lot of inflexibility in the donor landscape, unless you're talking about like unrestricted funding, which you can spend doing whatever you want, or strategic unrestricted funding where you've got some parameters in which you have to spend, but you're more or less in the driver's seat in terms of how you choose to spend it. How many programs have we worked on or evaluated where people have said, we've said, you might need to change some indicators Or you might need to change a few of these things because these might not be the most logical roadmap to getting where you're going. Mm -hmm. People said, we've already started, so we're not going to change it. Mm. Yeah, exactly. So that's a mindset as well, isn't it? Sure. Because I think, yeah, well, the problem with indicators and log frames is... Oh, God, here we go. (laughs) You're always complaining about... (laughs) Even even the 
measure of complex sensitivity it's like you know you've got a five-year project and let's say you changed everything every year or like every two years sure. what do you end up with at the end I mean, it's a story. It's a right. story of change. Jenny's transformation. But like, and so maybe it's about telling a story rather than saying, here's a set of five indicators that's sure. so rigid that we can't change it. I mean, what would you rather have to all the donors that, that are listening? Because I know there's, I know there's at least a few of you here. Um, they didn't write into us though. Yeah, because they're afraid. Don't be <laughs> We won't call you out. Don't worry. I might call you out. I'll probably call you up. Yeah, next week I'm going to be like, so the SCDO wrote into us and said, if you want anonymity, we will give it to you. Every time? Every time. Every time? Well. (laughs) What would you rather have? Would you rather have, would you rather? Oh, I like this game. (laughs) Would you rather fund an organization that was changing their indicators all the time in response to the evolution of a conflict. So they were better measuring things within shorter windows of time. Or would you rather have an, an organization that fixed their indicators for the next five years in time and never changed them at all, even if the landscape shifted? The former, but I have a small caveat. As long as that information is used, like it doesn't matter what the indicators are. If we think about the fact that like, well, it does matter, but if we think about the fact that you could have those five indicators for five years, but use that data to change your program. Sure. Or you could change your indicators well, and you'd not ha- use that that data. Well, you'd have to, because if you were going to change your indicators, you need to still be working towards something. So you would logically have to change your programming in some fashion. Yeah, but you could measure, but not use that information. Why would you change the indicator if you're not going to change your programming? So if I'm doing a wash program, I change the indicator from a washy thing to a livelihoods thing. Mm. I presumably have to change my thing unless... I'm just not going to work towards this indicate. Like, do you see what I mean? Yeah. You have to change one to change the other. If you're not, I don't know what you're doing. (laughs) (laughs) Let me put it to you this way. If you were to get rid of indicators entirely, what would you replace it with? I just measure like increments of change qualitatively. (laughs) Okay, moving on. (laughs) Next. The way you said that just made me want to scream in your face. <laughs> Why? I don't know. It's just something about it. <laughs> you just said something about the rigidity of programming. Yeah. So I think like also the other issue is often that that conflict sensitivity piece gets tied to a project, right? Rather than it being like integrated across an entire organization. Mm. And in terms of the integration across the organization, who funds that? You know, people and donors are much more likely to fund a project sure. than to fund like an organizational mindset shift around doing conflict sensitivity i don't know i mean when we do conflict sensitivity as that or our approach who funds that so we should do it <laughs> yeah that's a good point maybe people should just be doing it but is it not to a certain extent like it you're describing it as a mindset shift but maybe that's right because a lot of the things that we do when we're building like frameworks or tools for clients is saying this is a tool but this is a tool that's designed to get you toward behavioral changes. Right. This is to get you towards a principles-based approach, looking at competencies and the way that you're different. So when people say, we, we want to be more feminist in our whatevers, we say, yeah, here's some characteristics of what a feminist 
whatever might look like. But this is a, this is a tick box exercise. This is to move you, move the needle on you actually now embedding these into yourselves as behaviors. Yeah, exactly. I totally agree with that. The thing that's really flagged my attention to that approach is the way that we've done the equity pause. So it's almost like because we've said it so often and because it's like now it's just we've repeated it so much that it now is just there. It's not even an add-on. It's not a toolkit it's not it's just like something that's in everything yeah and so it almost I suppose did sort of start off as a toolkit uh, as activity a activity that's yeah. it and so maybe that is the same thing with the toolkit is the repetition of looking at that toolkit and those questions mean sure. that then it just the right people at the right time say that right question yeah and for me, I think that's the indication of the mindset shift in all that we do, including, you know, conflict sensitivity, all the things we talk about is when the right person is saying it at the right time, mm. um, right question, right person, right time. And that's frequent. From most perspective. Yes. Well, exactly. Who is the right person? Racist. But... <laughs> Wow, that really escalated. <laughs> the point is like that that your marker of change then is that people notice that's there. Right. So okay. we've just solved everything. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> oh, so this episode is now worth a hundred thousand pounds. Probably more. <laughs> I this is going to be the most proprietary <laughs> episode. What just solved? We just solved everything. This is going to be the most expensive Patreon. Literally, I think we should take that and like coin the whole shit out of Toolkit Plus. You know what we should do? We should bleep out that whole section, and then if you want to hear it unredacted, you have to pay for it. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Cool. Anything else? That's nice. It, we, I mean, not to reinforce capitalist protectionist thinking. Yeah, no, we can't do that. But I, we've got mortgages and stuff to pay for, so. I'm talking for f like two hours now. We should definitely pause here and then release part two later. Well, conflict sensitivity is a very interesting topic. Um, again, listeners, please feel free to write into us. If you have any thoughts, comments, experiences of the conflict sensitivity, we'd love to hear from you. Yes. And we'll read them out um, at the beginning of our next episode. And I think that's it from us. All the resources will be available in the show notes. Indeed. Okay. <laughs> All right. We'll see you next week, everyone. Thanks for listening. <laughs> I nearly said I love you. <laughs> I, I wish you had. Like, love you. <laughs> I wish you had. <laughs> we could use that at the end of everyone then. I'm Lauren. I'm dear. And this is the journey to transformation. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Journey to Transformation. Leave us a five-star rating and a written review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Journey to Transformation is written and edited by us, Tia Rogers and Lauren Burrows. Our music comes from Praz Canal.